in to what you're speaking to us, what you want us to see, that there's not distractions, nor that our eyes, that you would anoint our eyes and ears and help us have eyes and ears of the Spirit, Lord, and that you would tune our hearts into you. And Lord, I pray that this word, the word of the Lord, you would speak through me and it will go out as living seed to truth, sown in a good fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives, watered by the Holy Spirit to take root grow and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains. And Lord, there'll be a washing of the water of the word, a light of your word shining forth, dispelling all the darkness, all the lies, all the deception of the enemy and releasing truth and revelation. Holy Spirit, come as the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And Lord, that your word will be a mighty hammer that breaks down every stronghold of the enemy. Amen. Every, all the hardness that's around people, things that have been strongholds in people's minds, that the hammer of the word of God will break down those strongholds by the power of the Holy Spirit. Even a shell around the heart, the hardening that that would break. And your sword, Lord, would cut away what needs to go and release truth tonight. Lord, we pray over the word, let everything be accomplished that your will to be done. And we ask you to confirm your word in the lives of your people. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. All right, so I'm going to talk tonight about a really interesting subject on I'm continuing on the spine of prophecy. So I'm not dealing yet with the Antichrist. That'll be next week. I'll deal with the rise of the Antichrist and I'll deal with his ten kingdoms and I'll deal with the Babylonian world system. That'll be next week, okay? This is kind of a preparation for that. Remember the last time I preached the spine of prophecy, I dealt with the rise of the false church and the false prophet and that spiritual Babylon. So to sum that sermon up as, as quick and simple as I can, there's going to be a spiritual Babylon in the Bible in these last days. The Bible refers to it that way. Um, some people call it the revived Roman Empire, if you will. But really, I agree about the Vatican and all that. I believe that that is going to be significant, but it's a spiritual Babylon. And what it is, it's going to be a system somehow that the false prophet is able to cause some kind of a common ground around the world with religions where we can all all religions can come on some kind of equal ground but the problem is is that true christians that are born of god and that know his word are not going to be able to go along with it because we know that jesus is the only way to salvation and so that's going to be that message is going to be painted as a hateful message like hate speech and be very persecuted Okay, but there's going to be a false church, though, that represents Christianity to the world that will emerge, and whether or not it's, it's kind of a revival of Catholicism or if it's the Protestants kind of coming together with the Catholics, I don't know. But there's going to be some kind of a revival, uh, uh, I'm sorry, a, uh, um, an arising of this false church that's going to look like Christianity, but it's actually going to be a false Christianity. And this false Christianity will accept all religions and all roads leading to God and all these, pretty much anything you want to believe, okay? And the false prophet will oversee this. And you can already see it's, it's in the works. There's a lot of bumper stickers out there about coexist and all this, and that's the message of the false prophet. And so when he comes to power, that false prophet, He's going to lay something out there for everybody. I mean, everybody could go along with it, but true Christians won't. Now, that will help the Antichrist come to power. That will kind of be his platform about world peace and globalization, bringing all the world together under one government. That's going to help him come to power. So that was the last time I spoke, and to sum it up, okay? Now I'm going to deal with the Prince of Persia and Prince of Greece, and this will prepare for next week. All right, so starting with Daniel chapter 10, verse 10, it says, Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem. This was an angel that appeared to Daniel, by the way. And Daniel kind of went out under the power when the angel came. Daniel kind of collapsed under the power. He was weak and trembling. But the angel touched him 
and it's you know strengthening him helping him come to his feet and the angel said to daniel daniel a man of high esteem understand the words that i'm about to tell you and stand upright for i have now been sent to you and when he had spoken this word to me i stood up trembling then he said to me do not be afraid daniel for the from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your god your words were heard and i have come in response to your words to your prayers verse 13 but the prince of the kingdom of persia was withstanding me 21 days then behold michael one of the chief princes came to help me for i had been left there with the kings of persia and now i've come to you to give understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days for the vision pertains to yet the future and it goes on to say that after the prince of persia will come the prince of greece okay that's that's a prophetic reference there so i'm going to deal with the prince of persia and the prince of greece tonight so let me just dive into this so the prince of persia i want you to picture this with me for a second and just try to work with my line of thinking i believe the holy spirit will help me with this Sometimes while I'm preaching along these lines, I ask, you know, is everybody understand this and all this? Because I understand that this is um, not the easiest thing to teach on, especially to an eclectic group where you have people who have been saved a long time, others that have not. And I'm really depending on the Holy Spirit's help. Okay, so you guys just bear with me. I'm doing my best about this, but it's not an easy thing to, to teach in this way. All right, so the Prince of Persia very well could be what we know as Allah possible in fact it's very likely so a couple things about this number one there is an occult principle that I want to share real quick that will probably make sense about Allah there's a principle in the occult world where if you take something that's seemingly nothing there but you get people to keep worshiping and keep praying to this thing and you get more and more people more and more prayers more and more worship more and more people more and more prayers more and more worship over time that thing will begin to take on a life of its own and it will really grow into power but what that actually is is this you take something and you make an idol out of it and you get people beginning to worship and pray to that now a spirit begins to come into that the more that people are praying and worshiping it the more and more and more people the more that thing begins to grow in power because of the sin of worshiping that idol because sin empowers the demonic realm and so I believe that that is a really good example, that principle there of egregore, it's, it's an occult thing. I believe that that principle is exactly what happened with Allah because um, Muhammad went into Mecca and there was a whole bunch of gods there. He just kicked them all over and decided that this moon god named Allah was going to be the god. And he began to force all of his followers to worship this thing and they went on a very violent rampage and would slaughter anybody that would not worship at this thing so it was forced conversion and to this day you still see the fruit of that you know but nonetheless the more and more people worship and pray to that moon god that mecca moon god allah the more that thing seemed to grow in power i believe that the prince of persia more or less is a title and i believe that it it is a a prophetic reference not only to the times of daniel i do realize that after babylon you know came the medes and persians i understand that but i believe it's a prophetic reference also to the last days i believe that the prince of persia is a spirit and those that understand spiritual warfare will know what i'm talking about it's a principality that rules over the eastern world as we know it and I would go so far as to say, in my opinion, 
it even has jurisdiction into the Far East because it would be like a ruling principality over all the East and underneath its authority are many other thrones like thrones of Buddhism, thrones in Hinduism, thrones of Islam but it has some kind of a jurisdiction over the Eastern world as we know it. And this Prince of Persia has really uh, focused itself on Islam. And the reason why is because Islam serves its purposes so well. Islam has a deep hatred toward Christians and a deep hatred toward Israel. And I'll, I'm going to go ahead and get into that. But listen, the Prince of Persia plays on these people that are coming into Islam. There's, a, there's some scriptures in the Bible, and in the Hebrew, the words are olam and eba. Olam, eba. Olam is the word a lot of times, you know, they'll have that phrase, leolam, they, they have this olam, which is eternal or ancient. It can be translated that way. And it's in a lot of the songs and blessings that are sung because they're saying, blessed are you, Lord of God, King of the universe. But they, they'll, they'll talk about the eternal one that, you know, but in these scriptures here, Eba or Eba is hatred. Now look at this. Because in, uh, what is it, Ezekiel 35, 5 in your notes, okay? Because you have an ancient hatred and have shed the blood of the children of Israel by the power of the sword at the time of their calamity when their iniquity came to an end. But the point I'm trying to make here is an ancient hatred. Olam Eba, ancient hatred. Everybody say ancient hatred this goes way back this is another reason why this prince of persia has such influence because this ancient hatred goes way way back and i'm going to show you and then there's another scripture where you see it says thus says the lord because the philistines dealt vengefully and took vengeance with a spiteful heart to destroy because of the olam eba the ancient hatred so this is in scripture Here's where some of this hatred goes back to, and the prince of Persia is playing on this hatred. You have to understand that these, these territorial geographical spirits, like a prince of Persia, they only have the amount of influence that people are allowing them to have in their life. So if you're allowing this ancient hatred in you, you're allowing that thing to begin to influence you right there. And not to mention, when you begin to worship idols, you know, and you begin to pray to this thing and worship it, you're definitely coming under its influence. And so people don't understand, when they're, when they're worshiping and praying to Allah, they're not worshiping and praying to the God of Abraham. They're worshiping and praying to a fallen angel. And this thing has a powerful throne in the Middle East. And most likely, I believe that the reason why the Bible refers to it as the Prince of Persia instead of the Prince of like Babylon or, or some other ancient culture there is because that if you look right now on a map, Persia is where Iran is. And I believe that the reason Iran is like it is is because of this Prince of Persia. All right, so let me give you this ancient hatred. What is this Olam Eba? Where does this come from, this ancient thing? Well, it goes back to God's hand being upon a specific group of people and other family members resenting that. You had, first off, you had a split between Sarah and Hagar. You know, God told Abraham, he said, listen, you're going to have to let Hagar and her son go because the covenant is going to be with um, Isaac. And so Hagar and Ishmael had to be kind of thrust out. I'm sure that Abraham did that with tears. I'm sure that there was a lot of hugs from the whole clan. I'm sure that it was done the right way. But nonetheless, once they got out on their own, I'm sure it was a hurtful thing to them. And Hagar is Egyptian. Um, and then you also have the sons between Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael was the firstborn. So I'm sure that most of his young life, he saw himself as Abraham's oldest son, which was a great honor in that culture in that time. 
And for now Abraham to have to thrust him out like that and give all the inheritance and everything to Isaac, I'm sure that Ishmael had a lot of hurt and pain from that, feeling rejected. And so there's an ancient hatred there. The descendants of Ishmael today, the actual biological descendants live in Saudi Arabia. But I believe, if you can see this, I believe that the spiritual children of Ishmael are those that are in Islam, though. Then you had another division, Jacob and Esau. So, you know, you, Isaac had to s split with his brother. Now you have Jacob and Esau. And Esau, the Bible says that God hated Esau. And that's that's a, some strong terminology. But Esau was a man that was not after the things of God. He did not have a heart for the things of God. And so there was this split between Jacob and Esau. We know the story. And the descendants of Esau were the Edomites. Now, get this, modern-day Palestinians. Now, anybody that knows what's going on in the Middle East knows that there is a major conflict between the Palestinians and between Israel. The Palestinians are the ones that are right there at the border at the West Bank where Jerusalem is, Judea, where the Temple Mount is, and there's been a lot of terrorism there. Uh, the PLO and um, Yasser Arafat, when he was alive, there was just continual uh, terrorism. And these are the descendants of Esau. And then you have like the Moab and Ammonites, which are Jordan, Syria area. What I'm trying to get at is this. When God specifically said to Abraham that the blessing is going to go to Isaac, not anyone else. And then when it went from Isaac, it went to Jacob and not Esau. Esau and his descendants resent that. And whenever you have it going down the 12 tribes of Israel and it's not going over to uh, Lot and his children, Moab and Ammon. It, so there's a resentment there. Is anybody seeing this? There's an ancient hatred if they would simply just recognize the fact that God had to do it this way and honor God's choice and um, come at it that way with humility, God would bless them. And the thing is, the Bible says very clearly, I will bless those that bless Israel and curse those that curse Israel. And to my best understanding, these people are just bent on being cursed by God. Because they, they just refuse to acknowledge that God made that choice. And there's an ancient hatred, there's an ancient resentment there that the prince of Persia is continually um, manipulating people through that. Because you even wonder, you know, generational curses, you see that from parent to child, you see people, they, they grow up with such a hatred. And some of them, they're not necessarily, because they grew up maybe outside the Middle East, they're not necessarily taught all this hatred but it's like something in the way of iniquity and generational curses that's going down the bloodline about this and they need to ask God's forgiveness not only for their sin but the sins of their fathers about these issues and break that curse so that's the prince of Persia I believe it has a throne over modern day Iran but if you look at the ancient Persian empire the throne would extend over Iraq Saudi Arabia, things like that, in that whole area, that throne would extend in that whole Persian empire of times past. But right now, Iran is primarily the, the Persian empire of today. And look at the threat that they pose. They're trying so hard to get nuclear weapons to use them against Europe, America, and Israel. Now we're going to go to the prince of Greece. Now I'm going to read something to you here that um, I have from a long time ago. Derek Prince put this out, and I've kept it for many years. I really like it. 
But the Prince of Persia seems to strongly influence our Eastern world, our Eastern culture. But how many knows that Western society, when you look at Europe, North, North and South America, you look at Canada, you see an extremely different culture in every way. That's the Prince of Greece. The Prince of Greece, I'll, I'll try to elaborate more in a moment on this, but the Prince of Greece has a throne over the Western culture as we know it, as a whole. All right, so let me go ahead and just read this about Greek culture. It says, I realize that humanism, now here's the thing, if you guys can follow me about this, humanism is not spiritually neutral. On the contrary, it is a deliberate denial and rejection of God's power and authority. Everybody give me your best ear as I read this. I'll stop at points and elaborate, but this is so good, I have to share it with you. Derek Prince wrote this years ago. He said that he believes that humanism will be the forerunner to the rise of the Antichrist. And he said this, humanism is not spiritually neutral, but on the contrary, it is a deliberate denial and rejection of God's power and authority. It is an anti-religious religion. It is. For this reason, it can be and often is taught in educational systems such as that of the USA, which prohibit the teaching of religion in its usual sense. So it's an anti-religion religion. So he said, I decided to trace humanism back through history, starting with Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the image of the head of gold, which you guys have on the back of your sheet You'll notice that Nebuchadnezzar has a head of gold there in that vision. He also has arms of silver and the chest area. But then around his loins, around his midsection, is bronze, and that's Greece right there. So now keep that in mind as we read this, okay? It says, starting with Nebuchadnezzar's dream of an image with the gold head and the chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze and legs of iron, Daniel interpreted this foreshadowing for Gentile empires which would arise in succession. We know that, okay? But look at this. One key factor that impressed upon me was this. The reproductive organs were in the area identified with Greece. That's interesting. See, Derek Prince has a lot of authority to talk about this because he studied at an Ivy League college in Britain, but one of the things he studied was Greek language and Greek culture. So he's very astute about this, okay? He said this, with my background in Greek philosophy, this became particularly vivid to me. And I realized that it was Greece more than any other empire which through its philosophy reproduced itself in subsequent cultures. Now that's the truth. The Greek culture passed itself on to the Roman Empire and the Roman Empire passed it on to Europe and Europe passed it on to America and the West as we know it. But it goes back to the Greek culture. Now, if you'll follow me just a little bit more, it says, two of the early Greek philosophers of whom we have record are Heraclitus, Heraclitus, how do you say it, and Protagoras. There we go. Three of their surviving sayings are this, all things flow. Number two, you can never step into the same river twice. And number three, man is the measure of all things. That's interesting. Man is the measure of all things. It is amazing how these three sayings sum up in essence humanism. They assert that everything is relative, that there's no moral or legal absolutes, and that man is the highest authority in the universe. Hello? See, humanism teaches that if, first off, they believe that there's no moral absolutes, everything's relative, that means this. They believe that what is right or wrong for you may not be right or wrong for me, may not be right or wrong for them. That's humanism. But God said, 
in his word that specifically these things are right and these things are wrong love it or hate it that's the way it is and if you don't if you don't accept that they'll be held to pay in the end i mean god just flat out said that's the way it is the humanism will not accept that they want to argue well you know that's that's fine for you but this will be fine for me and and they also believe this humanism says that man is the highest authority in the universe now how ridiculous and absurd is that but that right there will definitely be a large reason why the antichrist comes to power because they believe that mankind is the highest authority and we do not have to submit to god almighty so it is outside the scope of this study to analyze that further but listen to this the greeks idolized the human mind remember me telling you guys about this you'll recognize it i, I forgot it was aristotle but aristotle's concept of god was this a perfect human mind contemplating itself <laughs> now let me say that again because people i don't think everybody got how ridiculous that is aristotle believed that god as we know god was a perfect human mind contemplating itself the whole thing about philosophy if you look into philosophy it's so just it it tries to bend the mind and it's so it tries to bring so much confusion and it's just it's way out there you got to get back to god's word as the absolute truth okay in addition to philosophy another main element of greek culture was its emphasis on athletic contests now this is very interesting really get this because this is very strong in our culture their olympic games represented what was in fact an idolatry of athletic prowess which has come back to life in this present century with the most widely viewed tv programs today are the great international sporting contest and to this day some of the greatest viewed things in our culture are the nfl you know and other sporting organizations are sporting events in fact if i'm not mistaken the super bowl may be the most watched event in our nation throughout the whole year so it's not that it's wrong to watch it per se but there is an idolatry there that is in the culture that people are too involved they're too wrapped up it's like making an idol of this stuff and it goes back to the greek culture another thing the greeks tended to do now listen to this one to downgrade the marriage relationship between a man and a woman hello and to view a homosexual relationship between two men as being more intellectually fulfilling. And the, even in their statuary, how many of you guys have seen the Greek statues? Everybody's seen some of them, okay. Even in their statuary, the idealized male form was usually predict, uh, presented as completely naked. But yet the women in the statuary would be clothed to some degree, have some kind of a drape. this goes back to that culture even today this prince of greece has been influencing america in that very area now listen to this as well the the greeks even though they were so philosophy philosophy based they also had this mythology and they had these so-called gods so the so-called gods of greece exhibited all the moral failings of humanity now think about it for a minute the gods of the greek culture were full of lust immorality jealousy vindictiveness and deception a complete absence in fact of any binding moral code and this left man free to be his own god and establish his own moral code after all no people can be expected to live above the level of their own gods Did everybody catch that last part? So there's even in Greek mythology, and this is interesting because you're dealing with the end times, and I'm not going to rabbit trail, okay? I'm guarding it. Just take down the rabbit right now. I'm not going to rabbit trail, okay? I saw it. I'm not going to do it. But it's interesting because in Greek culture, Jesus said it would be like it was in the days of Noah. 
And in the days of Noah, you had the Nephilim, remember? But in Greek mythology, there is stories of Greek gods coming down to human women and having sex and producing offspring. That's bizarre. All right, here's the next paragraph. All these effects of Greek humanism have been increasingly evident in our Western culture throughout the present century. Now, everybody, most people can remember. Okay, who has been born back in the time where at least most of us here can remember the Clinton administration, Bill Clinton? Is anybody born after that? Most people. And everybody sighs. Yeah. Everybody groans. Yeah. All right, well, anyway, in 1992... Now listen to what Derek Prince says. I really respect his opinion about this. He said, 1992, the spirit of humanism, the Prince of Greece, if you will, launched a major new offensive against both the USA and Israel. Almost simultaneously, a dark cloud, a dense spiritual darkness descended on both nations. In their national elections that year, the spiritual force brought about the power of the Clinton administration coming into power in the U.S. and the labor coalition in Israel, and it was blatant, undiluted humanism. Nobody can argue with that. Even, see, the labor party in Israel is very liberal. And so, just like our Democrat, Democratic Party here is very liberal. And as I'll explain here in a moment, this prince of Greece, humanism, it manifests itself mainly through liberalism. And everybody knows what I'm talking about when I say liberalism. The liberalism is being pushed in our education system. It's being pushed through the media. And this liberalism goes back to the prince of Greece. And what it is, it's very anti-God. It's anti-Jesus Christ. It's anti-Bible. Both administrations represent an open and deliberate rejection of God's righteous laws and the covenants he made with man, first through Moses, then through Jesus Christ. And they have demonstrated that carried to its ultimate humanism, listen to this, humanism will believe anything but the truth and will tolerate anything but righteousness. Nobody could say that better than that. Let me read that again. That is so true, isn't it? Humanism, liberalism, will believe anything but the truth and will tolerate anything but righteousness. This exaltation of man is the force which will finally give rise to the Antichrist whose name is the number of man, 666, remember? The, he's called the man of lawlessness who opposes and exalts himself above everything that is called God or worship and even sets himself up as in the temple as proclaiming himself to be God. This is humanism. Scripture reveals that he'll bring under his dominion all who have refused to love the truth. That's why I'd say that all the time and here in these last day sermons, I'm saying we've got to love the truth. You've got to love the truth with all your heart and, and, and stay hold of God and his word, you know. And Anyway, Scripture reveals that that. Under his dominion, he's going to bring everybody under his dominion that did not love the truth. And for this reason, the Bible says, God will send them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. Now, it's interesting because you say, well, what? I'm sure they'll believe many lies, but when it says the lie, what's it talking about? The original lie, when Satan told Adam and Eve, or specifically told Eve, you can be like God, or in other words, you can be God. You can be gods. That's the original lie. And that's humanism where man is now God. And it is the prince of Greece that is behind this. The exaltation of man in place of God will usher in the great tribulation. And Derek Prince says here, a period, this tribulation time will be a period of worldwide agony so terrible that it will exceed even the Holocaust from 1939 to 1945. Before this final period of tribulation, however, God still has a tremendous purpose 
to work out for both Israel and the church. Right now is a harvest of mercy. I love, I, I hear this all the time because I've listened to this uh, Revival Fire CD and I hear Steve Hill, you know, give that prophecy. And every time I read something like this, I hear his voice in my head. And he says this, this warm season of grace and mercy right now will soon one day be turned to a chilling winter of judgment and wrath. And that's exactly what the Bible says. Right now, we're living in a warm season of grace where God is calling sinners to repentance. But one of these days, there's going to be a catching way of the bride and everything's going to change. God's warm season of grace is going to be turned to a chilling season, a chilling winter of judgment and wrath. Now, here's an interesting scripture in Zechariah 9:13. It says, I will raise up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. The sons of Greece are those that embrace the deception of humanism and liberalism. The sons of Zion are those who take a stand upon the infallible word of God. Wasn't that good? So let me say that again. The sons of, of Zion, the children of God, the sons of Zion are those that are going to take a strong stand who love the truth and are going to take a strong stand with God's word. That even though the world around us is saying that any road leads to God, true Christians are saying no, but the Bible says through only Christ can you get to God. The sons of Greece, though, will be those that embrace this humanism and this liberalism and get swept into this deception. I believe that the prince of Greece is an ancient spirit. It's a principality. And like I said earlier, it rules over the Western hemisphere as we know it. And underneath him, underneath his authority, come principalities like, for example, that rule over Britain, rule over America and other geographic places. But I believe that the prince of Greece oversees all of that. And I believe people say, well, where's his throne? Well it, well, it very well could be in Greece. But if you think about it, I think that his throne, for example, in Austria came, out of Austria came World War I. Out of Germany came World War II. Right now in Brussels is the European Union headquarters. And then you've got Greece and then you've got the Vatican, Rome, Italy. Somewhere in that cluster is where that Prince of Greece resides. All right, so let's now look at the statue. And we're going to close this thing out. Daniel saw three, well, Nebuchadnezzar had the dream of the statue, okay? But Daniel was given three distinct revelations. And I'm going to go quickly because I'm not going to dwell on this tonight. This is just to talk about the Prince of Persia and the Prince of Greece. But you see the top, you, look, you see the statue. Then underneath that, you see another vision from left to right. You see the lion with wings, the bear, the leopard, then the beast and the antichrist. Then you see the third vision, which was the ram and the he-goat. But they all speak of the same thing. The first thing was in Daniel's day was Babylon. And he saw the head of gold. He saw the lion with wings. Then after Babylon came the Medo-Persian Empire. And you guys know of that because of the story of Esther. Esther lived in the time of the Persian Empire. She had to approach the Persian king Xerxes. So that was the next empire. The Medes and Persians conquered Babylon and took over. And they're also seen as the bear or the ram. And then you see the Greek Empire after that, Alexander the Great. And you guys remember the story of Hanukkah where some of the Greek rulers, especially Antiochus Epiphanes, hated Israel and, you know, went after them and God gave them a great victory and they celebrate with Hanukkah. But that's the Greek empire and it's represented by the leopard and the he-goat. And then you see the legs of iron. That's the Roman empire and it's the strange beast. And then the final was the toes. 
The only thing I don't like about this statue, and the reason I don't, the the feet are iron, just like the legs. In the in the Bible, it's very clear. That iron goes all the way through to the toes, and the toes are part iron, part clay. And that's very significant because the Roman Empire fell, but when it did, it had already amalgamated itself with the Vatican. And so even though Rome as we knew it, as a secular society fell, it lived on through Roman Catholicism. And so in other words, those legs of iron, the Roman Empire, went from that time all the way through the rise of the Antichrist and the Ten Toes. There's no break in it. And then you see the stone without hands, Jesus coming down and smiting that statue and destroying it all. But anyway, we'll, we'll get to this stuff at another time. I just want to introduce you to it. So the Prince of Persia, let me recap as I close. You see things like Islam, the Olam Eba, the ancient hatred. But you see under the Prince of Persia, you see a lot of anti-Semitism. You see a lot of hatred toward Israel and Christians. You see a lot of hatred and violence. You see a form of godliness, a form of religion, but it's nothing to do with God. You see also sexual perversions in that culture. I mean, it's really starting to come out, but it's always been there. There's a lot of pedophilia. There's a lot of rape. Um, you know, women can be sex slaves, things like that. There's a lot of sexual perversions. You see terrorism and chaos. But see, here's what the Prince of Persia is going to do in the East. It's continually sowing all this chaos through terrorism. But that is actually going to cause the world more and more and more to want some kind of a religious leader to come in and unite the religions and bring some kind of peace to all this. That's what they're going to start crying out for. And the true body of Christ is going to be saying, no, we don't need some religious false prophet. We don't need some false church. Everybody just needs to come to Jesus. And that's going to be viewed as hate speech. But this religious control will help the rise of the Antichrist. All right, now the Prince of Greece, Western culture where we live, humanism and liberalism. Let me give you an example. The liberals. Not all that long ago, there was a democratic, I think you can YouTube this, some democratic convention where all that were there were openly booing God Almighty. See, liberalism, there's a hatred toward God. That's why they're working in connection with this homosexual agenda to target Christians. There's a hatred toward Christians, toward the Bible, toward God, toward Jesus Christ. And what's going to happen is, eventually, there's going to be a unification of the governments of the world under the Antichrist, globalism. But here's kind of what I wanted to close with these last couple things here is this because I didn't want to spend too much time on this part of the Antichrist next week. But the Antichrist, the Prince of Greece, is really preparing for his rise to power right now. The people that are coming into positions of presidents and rulers and, and, and you know, the House of Lords in Britain and, and here our government and other parts of the world, there's such a liberalism that these people, some of them may realize it and some of them may not realize it, but they're actually preparing for the rise of the Antichrist through their liberalism, through their anti-God laws, through trying to desensitize society to certain sins and trying to make it illegal to evangelize and trying to make it hate speech to talk about Jesus. They're, they're, they're trying to prepare the way for the Antichrist, whether they realize it or not. But the Antichrist, here's the last couple things. He will be a counterfeit Messiah. There's a scripture where Jesus said to Israel, to the people of Israel, you did not accept me when I came in my name, but you will accept another when he comes in his name. And in the Greek there, it's another Jew. 
So a lot of people believe that he'll be a Jewish man. I don't know. And some people believe he'll be a Muslim. I'll give you my opinion next week. But he's gonna, it's going to be bigger than any one religion. I'll just say that. But he will be a counterfeit Messiah figure of some kind. But here's what I wanted to focus on as I close is this. The Antichrist spirit is working right now under the Prince of Persia. But that Antichrist spirit is in the world. The Antichrist, he may be alive somewhere. We don't know for sure who he is. But the spirit of Antichrist has been in the world for 2,000 years. Now, the spirit of Antichrist, the word Christ in the Greek means the anointed one. The Antichrist spirit is an anti-anointing spirit. Here's what I'm, here's where I'm going with this. Right now, to prepare for Christ's coming, God has been pouring out his spirit in these last days. We know this. But there's always been people that have been very anti-revival, anti-Holy Spirit, anti-tongues, anti-Pentecost. They hate it. And they really oppose it. They preach sermons against it. They write books against it. They go on the radio against it. They go on the television. They're just very opposed. And the thing is, they don't realize it, but they are under the influence of an antichrist spirit. And let me tell you something, guys. I'm concerned for their soul because of what Jesus Christ said. Now, these are not my words, and it's not my opinion. This is Jesus' words and Jesus' opinion. I just agree with Jesus, okay? But Jesus said, and I quote, if you speak against the Son of Man, you'll be forgiven. But if you speak against the Spirit of God, you will not be forgiven. And it really grieves me when I see these people going that route. They need to be very careful about what they're saying. Because they're not really opposing man. They're opposing the Holy Spirit. And when you read the book of Esther, do you remember, we just, you know, I think everybody read that around, you know, the time we had Purim and stuff. But you guys remember Vashti was the, the wife of the king. And the king asked Vashti to come to the banquet and she refused. Did you know she's a picture and type of the rebellious side of Christianity, the rebellious church that refuses to submit to the Lord and refuses to um, be intimate with him? But Esther, she represents the true bride of Christ and she desired to go through the beauty process, the beauty treatments where she was bathed, she was washed, she was anointed with oil, she was prepared to meet with the king. And so you can see two very different people here. When Jesus called for intimacy to come be with him, Vashti refused. But Esther prepared herself for it. And in that same story, you see Haman and his 10 sons, which I believe prophetically speak of the Antichrist and his 10 kingdoms. So we need to be like Esther, getting ready for the Lord's coming. We need the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We need to be filled with extra oil. We need to go through the process and, and embrace the move of God and embrace the Holy Spirit. We need to love the truth and we also need to love the Holy Spirit. We need to love what he's doing in the world today. Because you see the religious crowd. You remember how David, you know, he wore his royal robe whenever he would go sit on the throne or where, whenever he would go out in public. David would wear his, his royal robes on top of his garments. But at home, when he kicked back and he was by himself, he's with his wife and kids, you know, he wore casual clothes that were underneath the royal robes. But when he danced before God and he got free in his praise and worship and he loved God and he was expressing himself, he took off those royal robes. Why? Because he said that God is truly the king of all kings and I'm not going to wear kingly garments before him. He ripped them off and he danced before his God. And what happened? Michal, his wife, despised him and spoke against him and ridiculed him. Isn't that the same as the religious people out there? 
You know, people start having revival in their church. People are dancing. People are getting free. People love God, and they're expressing themselves to God. And they, the, the religious Michaels out there, the Pharisees, point at them, and they despise them in their hearts. But Michal, God caused her to be barren the rest of her life. You know, religion is sterile, isn't it? It doesn't produce real, true, everlasting, eternal fruit. Religion is sterile and will only produce after its own kind. It's like blight in a crop. It won't produce true eternal fruit. Now, Hannah, on the other hand, was a woman of God. She lived holy. She went to God's house. She was there during the feast time and were given her offerings to the Lord, her tithe and things, and she was worshiping and praying. And she was, uh, sorry, Eli came and saw her and he blessed her. You know, she became pregnant. Listen, people that are sincerely going to be prayer warriors and live right and go after God with all their heart, they're going to be fruitful for the Lord. What I'm trying to get at is this. Religion is not going to bear true fruit in eternity. It may look good now to some people, but it's not bearing true fruit of lives being eternally changed. But whenever you have people that are really going after God with all their heart and they're not about religion, they're about revival, that's what produces true eternal fruit, fruit that will remain in eternity. And here's what we're going to pray about tonight. I want everybody to give me your best ear about this. I'm trying to use my words wise here because I felt in my heart, I felt in my spirit, and y'all know me, I would never say this unless I really did feel this, but I have felt like the grief of the Holy Spirit lately. And to some degree, even in regards to some things with River of Life, but bigger than that with the body of Christ in our area. But I literally, you know, the Holy Spirit can be grieved. The Bible says that. And I have felt some grief. And as I've been praying about it, what God has shown me is about lukewarmness. And I want everybody to give me your best ear, but I want you to allow the Holy Spirit tonight, if this does pertain to you, to embrace his conviction because he loves you and he's trying to help you. Jesus said in the word, he spoke to the seven churches, but you remember the last church, Laodicea, which I believe speaks of the last day church. He spoke to the last day church and he said that lukewarmness it would be better that they were cold or hot, but because they're lukewarm, he would spew them out of his mouth. But spew means vomit. So in other words, he's saying it nauseates him that people are lukewarm. Now, please take what I'm saying to heart here because that's the words of Jesus, and those are some strong words. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to live my life in a way that is nauseating to the Lord. So let's, let's evaluate lukewarm for a moment. Cold would be out of church, away from God, living in sin. So when you're dealing with lukewarm, you're dealing with church folk. Lukewarm is this. It's where the fire and the passion is dimmed down. It's no longer like it used to be. And in regards to the body of Christ, and even here in River of Life, I have felt literally praying, I have felt the grief like the Holy Spirit has been grieved about some things. And let me just give you some examples. If any of this relates or whatever, we can pray about it tonight. But some people, we got to understand how much of an honor it is to come into God's presence. I've been in church my whole life, and I know for a fact that God's presence is not everywhere. And his presence is not like this in a lot of places. And y'all know that. And I say that humbly, but it's the truth. And I make it a point. How is it that even though God's presence is so strong and God's moving like this and he's touching people, that people can still get so indifferent to that? You know? And it's like being around the fire, but not really in the fire. And what I felt specifically was about people's personal prayer lives. 
You know, is it still the passion and the hunger, a pursuit of God, or has it just kind of become something that's routine and mundane? What about the hunger for his word? Is there a hunger for the word of God, or is it just, well, I'll read it because I have to here and there? What about the passion in worship? Is there a passion? And what about wanting to be in his presence and wanting to be at church? This is something, too, that I've felt the grief of the Spirit of God about. You know, there's people back in the Brownsville Revival, for example, that would travel land and sea to come into God's presence, literally. But there's people that lived in Pensacola that wouldn't even make a walk up the road. I mean, how stupid can you be? Seriously. But that's just the way the people are. And I felt the, the Lord, just, here's what I felt like. We're praying for revival. We're wanting, we're hungry for revival. We're asking God for revival. And where revival really does come full in its fullness, which it is in America, because the Prince of Greece is not going to have the final say. God's already said he's sending revival, amen. So when revival comes, we all know that's going to require more services and more time to accommodate more people. But yet, in the body of Christ, not just here, I think it is here, but other places as well, given the opportunity to be in God's manifest presence and worship him, to spend time with Jesus at his house, to make the journey, and, or stay home, watch TV, go to movies, do other things, hang out with friends, hang out with family, da -da -da, whatever it is, um, I'll do this. You don't realize how much that speaks to God. Because here we are praying for revival, but yet people won't even, you see what I'm saying? That's lukewarm. If we can, if we can live that way and be comfortable with it, it's lukewarm. And I prayed today, all day really, and I was seeking the Lord, and I felt, you know, the Lord wants to convict some people about some things tonight. So if this hits home, let it hit home. It's supposed to. But we shouldn't feel comfortable with being cold. Well, lukewarm. I'm not going to use the word cold. We shouldn't feel comfortable lukewarm. That's scary. See, when Jesus comes, he's not coming for, I'm telling you, he's not coming for a lukewarm bride. The, the people that are lukewarm here, that he says in his word, out of his own mouth, nauseate him, they're not going in the rapture. So a preacher getting up here in love and saying, guys, let's check ourselves for any lukewarmness. Okay, let's make sure there's none of that there. Thank God. Thank God that we have the opportunity to do that. Amen. Because there's a lot of places out there, trust me, that this would never come up in their church. And people being lukewarm is just the norm. So let's take a moment. If we have allowed the hunger to die down, and what really sparked this in me, oh God put on my heart, to read this book by Kathy Wood on the Brownsville Revival. It's her personal journey and her personal emails and things. And just the hunger and the passion. She could not wait to get into God's presence. And I, I'm having Brianna read it because I want her to, as an intercessor, to be praying about stuff. She said when she opened it, she started crying. That's how the messy anointing was. But she said, this lady, she was saying she couldn't wait to get to church. You know, they'd be flicking the lights and she was the last one to leave and she was thinking on her way home, when are they going to open things up tomorrow? Because I can't wait to get into God's presence. I'm just so hungry for more of him. Guys, that should be normal Christianity. If, if that is not normal Christianity, I'm just telling you it's lukewarm. When Jesus comes, he's coming for a bride that's on fire for him, that wants to be with him, that wants to be in his presence, that's looking for his coming that's hungry for him. So let's pray about it tonight. I want you, if you would, put on something, just some quiet music. Shut down recordings, please. But put on some quiet music. I want us to find a place where we can pray about this stuff. And let's ask the Lord, Lord, if there's any lukewarmness, forgive me, Lord. Put a fire back in me again. guys I'm gonna say this too there may be people over the years 
that you look up to, you admire them, you see them in church, and then you see that they're lukewarm or they're not right or they're doing whatever. Don't let other people ever affect you. You go after God with all your heart. You make up your mind, no matter what anybody else ever does, I'm going after Jesus with all my heart.